This is the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I really hope that you guys enjoy today's show. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. Joining me once again, I think this is the first time I've ever had someone uh, be a three-peater on my podcast, is Cody Cook, podcaster, author, all-around great guy. And we're going to talk about Christian nationalism today. Now, this is like the third episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast that has been on Christian nationalism in the last two months. But we're, we're not going to be directly attacking Stephen Wolf's book this time. We're attacking another aspect of Christian nationalism. So, Cody Cook, welcome to the Protestant Libertarian podcast yet again. Thank you, Alex. I, it's an honor to be here again. The, the honor never fades. I, I'm always just as giddy to be on the third, the second time as I was the first. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I mean, I mean, we're getting to the point where you're basically a co-host of this uh, podcast, you know, which is a great thing. So you, you sent me on Twitter this statement on Christian nationalism and the gospel. And I've talked a couple of times on my show before, well, more than a couple of times, but I've had two episodes about Stephen Wolf's book, uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism. I did a review of it, and then I had a Reformed pastor come on and explain why it doesn't work from the Reformed tradition. But this statement on Christian nationalism doesn't come from Stephen Wolf. Uh, it comes from a different Wolf. So talk to us a little bit about this statement and, uh, and why it's so significant. Yeah, so there's a number of uh, editors and signers on here. Uh, yeah, William Wolf is one of the contributing editors. I believe he was in the Trump administration in the DOD, um, and he has a pretty strong presence on Twitter. Um, there's other names on here, but one of the one of the main major ones I think who seems to be sort of an up and comer in the movement is a guy named Joel Webin. And basically, what they're trying to do um, is, I think they were concerned about the fact that Christian nationalism has become kind of a kind of a big catch-all boogeyman kind of term uh, for anything that people on the left don't really like. And they were also concerned about the fact that there are people who are basically white supremacists and white nationalists who were calling themselves Christian nationalists. So they wanted to make a statement to sort of clarify, uh, just to sort of push the, the, the white nationalists out a little bit and also clarify specifically or explicitly what they meant by Christian nationalism. Um, and so um, we'll, we'll get into... Um, Obviously, it's better. It's good that they're kicking out the white nationalists, but we'll get into whether the statement is a good statement in general, uh, despite that uh, that positive uh, change. Yeah, and I got to say, reading through it, it is a lot more nuanced than Stephen Wolf's book, and I think that it's also a lot more tempered as well. Stephen Wolf has a lot of very extreme proposals, which I think is just a part of his personality. Like I think that he's a deliberately provocative writer, and he makes points that he knows are going to irritate certain political groups in the United States. Um, so this one's a lot more measured, a lot more nuanced, and they actually attempt to base what they what they write in scripture, which is uh, which is very interesting. Although underneath every single article, a Roman. 13 always seems to be the scripture that they're yeah, listening to. We'll get into some of the scripture citations and whether they're, they're really basing it on scripture or not. But um, yeah, I think part of it too is that they're trying to build a broad-based coalition. And so, um, you know, Christian nationalism has always been this kind of vague kind of thing. You know, it's like, well, you know, you know, God and country, I'm holding the flag and I'm holding the Bible. And so, but it, it's not necessarily always been stated in an explicit way or, or sort of given a theological underpinning. It was just kind of more of a sentiment or a feeling. Yeah. Um, and you sort of had the theonomy movement, which was largely reformed, you know, Calvinistic, uh, post-millennialist. And then within that sort of reformed post-millennialist, there's also post-millennialists that aren't uh, theonomists, but then so within that theonomist. So it was kind of this really slender piece of a piece of a piece of Christianity. Um, and what I think they're trying to do is as, you know, non 
uh, Calvinists and non-postmillennialists, you know, you know, Baptists who are premillennialists um, are sort of catching this sort of nationalist bug a little bit. They're trying to, I think, bring them in. Um, and so they, 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 they sort of, they spend a lot of time sort of saying, don't worry, just because you're not like a Calvinist doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to be in trouble <laughs> when we start the Christian state. Um, but, you know, but if you're outside of Christianity, then you are in trouble. Um, <laughs> so, yes. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's part of it, too, is there it's 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 um, I want to say ecumenical, although I really if you look at what they sort of define as a Christian, they look at the, the creeds, which Eastern Orthodox and Catholics could also affirm. But I also know that a lot of these sort of very conservative evangelicals would not consider Eastern Orthodox and, Prod- and uh, Catholics to really be Christian. So I, I'm, I'm a little I, I still wonder about that a little bit, how, how uh, those folks would fare in this kind of uh, if, if this kind of society were built. But uh, at least on paper, they seem to be welcome. Yeah, and that was another thing that I thought of too as I was reading through this statement is that they they do claim to be inclusive of all the different denominations, but then what do you do with groups like the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons who claim yeah. to be a part of the Christian tradition but have teachings that do not align sure. with historic Orthodox Christian thought? Well, they would be out because they don't uh, affirm the Nicene Creed. Yeah, but but here's here's what's sort of fun about this. <laughs> um, there's this sort of movement of egalitarian um, uh, theologians. Who would argue that um, complementarians, those who have sort of traditional, traditionally sort of traditional um, gender role views, uh, they would be uh, unorthodox because uh, they would understand them to be denying the Nicene Creed because they build they build this argument of sort of the son as being subordinate to the father, and so egalitarians would say that's a violation of the Nicene Creed, which would mean, <laughs> if, if, if you know, it's, it's possible at least that these people could get kicked out of their own <laughs> Christian nation, <laughs> right. It, it it is it is funny how exclusive this is, and that's one of the problems with Christian nationalism in general. Is that I just I feel like with and this was like just so apparent in Stephen Wolf's book, and I, I know I said I wasn't going to talk about him the entire time, and I won't. But it's just very obvious that there. <sighs> This could obviously and easily be wielded against these people if Christians yeah. that they deem to be outside of their sort circle of orthodoxy sure. wind up taking control. So, like, it's once you implement this mechanism of power on society, then somebody else can easily come in and co-opt uh, it and take it away from you, and then all of a sudden you're the one who's uh, thrown in prison for having divergent beliefs. Sure, absolutely. I, I think of Animal Farm, right? I mean, where, where you know they, they're they're changing the the laws, you know, about you know. Uh, um, uh, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. It's like when it, they, made, they, they do this little addendum. And yeah, you're right. So, I mean, if you say, well, on paper, everybody'd be welcome Catholics and Orthodox and Baptists and Reformed and Arminians. But it's like, okay, but now that we've created this thing that is basically saying we're going to enforce uh, rel- you know, religious views on people, more or less, um, once you've created that thing, all it is is it's a simple change. You know, you, you just, you just, bring the boundary in a little bit more and now somebody's out. Um, and, and so, you know, you know, of course my attitude is don't build the kind of thing that can do that. Um, that seems really stupid and self-destructive. Yeah. And I think we as libertarians are in a position to see just how dangerous power can be. Because again, once you build these institutions of power, there's no guarantee that you will be able to hold on to it. Sure. But they would say, yes, but at least <laughs> I don't know what they would say I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe the Calvinists will end up in prison, but at least we don't have drag queen story hour like you libertarians right. are allowing. 
Yeah, I know. Great. What? What? Yeah. What? What? What a trade off. The Calvinists go to prison, and you know we have drag queen story hours. I'm, yeah, I don't know. Um, well, let's let's go ahead and take a look at some of the some of the content that's in this statement on Christian nationalism and the gospel. Right. And I will link it to. Um, I, I will put links to this in the show notes so that the audience can go and read this on their own. It reads a lot like the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. Uh, it has an introduction where they kind of explain what they're doing, and then it has a series of affirmations and denials. So very, uh, and it's, it's very well laid out but yeah. at the very beginning oh, of this oh, they oh, give th- oh go ahead so one quick thing so uh, since, since so we put all our notes together on i think the first draft of this statement and i think they've just done another draft and they're kind of working on finalizing it so if somebody's listening and following along they may notice some, some differences yeah yeah and the one the one that i have uh, the one that i have in front of me right now dates to 527 23 so that's okay. what we're looking at may 27th so they they define christian nationalism right at the very beginning and here's the definition i want to talk about this for a minute but they define christian nationalism this way say christian nationalism is a set of governing principles rooted in scripture's teaching that christ rules as supreme lord and king of all creation who has ordained civil magistrates with delegated authority to be under him over the people to order their ordained jurisdiction by punishing evil and promoting good for his own glory and the common good of the nation. So that is their definition of Christian nationalism. What, what do you what, what do you think about that, Cody? Yeah, I think that that I, basically what th- this definition is is it's so vague that it could actually be affirmed by avowed anti-Christian nationalists. So, like Anabaptists, for example, they would agree that Christ is supreme over creation. They would agree that God ordains governments for good ends. Uh, they would also say that Christians should operate completely apart from these governments. So, Christian nationalism is doing more than uh, really just what this definition is saying it's doing. It's uh, positively teaching that the state should be enforcing Christian prerogatives upon non-Christians and dissenting Christians at the point of a sword. So, yeah. uh, and this is the idea that you can't find anywhere in scripture. Um, and it's all, so basically I think this definition is, is dishonestly broad. It's a bit like when someone says, oh, well, you know, feminism is just the idea that men and women should be treated equally. And well, that sounds reasonable. I guess I'm a feminist who could disagree with that. And then they sort of retort back, okay, good. So you believe that women have a right to get an abortion then. <laughs> and so they've smuggled something into the back door. Uh, but, but I think really the goal of this definition, I, I don't want to uh, accuse somebody of being dishonest intentionally, but it does feel to me like they're sort of starting with a very broad definition that nobody could disagree with. And then they're going to try to kind of sway you through the rest of the, 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 the statement to sort of get you on their side. Yeah, I completely agree. And then this too builds in, I think, a very modern concept of the na- like nationhood and a very unbiblical one as well. Because if you look at the New Testament, like the only nation that matters is the people of God. It's the family of Abraham, which is defined by faith in the gospel. That's that's it. And so outside of that, there is no real like political philosophy. And in a lot of ways, I think that the early church kind of thought of itself as being supra political, like beyond politics, and that yeah. they understood that Jesus is the resurrected and ascended Messiah. And so our allegiance is to him alone and whatever kind of governmental structures existed out there were almost incidental to the reality of the church that what really mattered was participation in this community and this community was self-regulating there was no need for any state coercion to either bring people in or any sort of state coercion to to keep this group coherent it's all about faith well and you, you said something too about this being sort of a modern idea of a nation and i think that's important because as i was reading this it occurred to me they're not talking about Christian nationalism, they're talking about Christian nationalism. So it's like, it's really these two different ideas that are being smacked together. It's not like, wouldn't it be great if the nation was more Christian? It's, it's actually sort of like, okay, we're going to, we have Christianity on one side, we have this view of nationalism on the other side, and we're going to kind of put them together. 
Right. That's that's exactly that's exactly right. And then there's also this idea too that there should be like multiple nations. And if you're like like if you take like the Apostle Paul for instance, for Paul there are only two nations. There's the family of Abraham, and then there's the Gentiles, those that are not a part of the family of Abraham. And so even like theologically, from the perspective of the writers of the New Testament, this undercuts like on a fundamental level the way that they understand nationhood and our participation in nationalism as Christians. It just doesn't to me. It just doesn't make any sort of biblical sense. And it's it's like you kind of alluded to this earlier, uh, but they quote like all of these Bible passages at the end of each statement. And the vast majority of these Bible passages have literally nothing to do yeah. with the implementation of a state or governance at all. Sure. <laughs> you know, it, it reminds me of when I, when I remember, well, I think we might get into the just war stuff because it does come in a little bit later into the, in the statement. Uh, but I remember doing research on just war theory as a Christian pacifist. And so I went and I looked at Thomas Aquinas's uh, uh, section on the Summa about that subject. And he has like, it's like something like maybe five quotations, three are from Augustine, two are from scripture, but the ones from scripture have nothing to do with, with, with the topic at hand. You right. know? Um, so anyway, it's kind of funny how that works. Yeah, they're just kind of cherry picking text uh, that. Well, they you know they take texts out of their context that sound like they yeah. support their argument, which and we you know we know we know how that game gets played. Uh, but they they introduce the affirmation and denial after their definition of Christian nationalism, and they they say this. I think it's really important just to kind of frame the articles that we're going to look at here in a, a minute. It says Christian nationalism is primarily concerned with the righteous rule of civil authorities, not spiritual matters pertaining to salvation. Which I think is an interesting dichotomy uh, they have there. Uh, the desire for a Christian nation is not a distraction from the gospel, but rather an effort to faithfully apply all of Scripture to all of life, including the public square. As such, Christian nationalism is not just for civil authorities, just as submitting to Christ's lordship is not just for civil authorities, but for all people. After the Lord Jesus declared his sovereign authority in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, the Great Commission, he gave the Great Commission and commanded his followers, empowered by his everlasting presence, to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Our Lord did not exclude all civil authorities from the command to submit to his authority and display allegiance to him. What's the problem with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. So we're not we're not talking about spiritual matters. We're talking about um, the dead letter of the law. We're not talking about the life giving spirit. We're talking about the death <laughs> the death dealing letter of the law. Of course, what's wrong with that? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so we'll get into this a maybe a little bit. Oh, let's just get into it now. Their quotation of Matthew twenty eight eighteen about the Great Commission. It's interesting to me that this is a go-to passage for them. And I think it is because there's a, there's a, a section in there about Christ having all authority. And that sounds like, okay, well, Christ has all authority, then we should go ahead and make a Christian nation. Um, and so it sounds like it could be useful for them. But its explicit application is that Christians should make disciples and baptize them. Not that government should force people to behave like disciples of Christ, whether they're sincere or not. Um, so, it, uh, man, there, there's this kind of this whole big subject here that I think is important, but it's also so big. Um, um, and something I've written about a little bit, I wrote a book called Fight the Powers about it. Um, but so <laughs> I mean, in the Old Testament, there's this idea that the nations had been given up to these um, sort of um, corrupt spiritual beings, the, they're called the sons of God in Deuteronomy 32.8. And, uh, and so you, and that this is kind of a common thread that you see throughout scripture. Um, Psalm 82 talks about them. God is going to judge them on the day of judgment. Uh, you know, they, they may be these sort of God like beings, but they'll die like men. And these are, you know, these are essentially angelic beings is what we call them. Um, 
And so you get into Daniel, you read about how um, Daniel sort of gets his peek behind the curtain and you see that the Prince of Persia, the Prince of Greece, these are spiritual powers that are behind the nations and that they are the ones who are kind of moving things around and sort of working behind the scenes. So there's this discussion about how, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the Prince of Persia will fall and the Prince of Greece will come next. Well, that's about how the Persian empire is going to fall and the, and the Greek empire is going to come after. And so when you get to the new Testament, Satan is explicitly referred to as the person who's basically the head honcho in this sort of corrupt system, this sort of powers, power behind the power. Right. And so uh, Satan offers Jesus uh, essentially the opportunity to create Christian nations. Um, he says, you know, I, I have this power. I can give this to whomever I choose. I can give this, this power of this political power, uh, the rulership of the nations to whomever I choose. Jesus doesn't correct him on that. He doesn't say, he doesn't, he doesn't quote a scripture to say, well, that's not true. Um, in fact, he goes on in the gospel of John to refer to Satan as the God of this world, I think three different times. And it plays into Paul's whole idea of the powers and principalities. And so really what Jesus is doing is he's announcing this fifth column movement. The kingdom of God is not let's do what Satan is doing, but just do it over here and do it a little bit differently with different laws. It's this sort of, you know, what, what Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not right. Um, and, but it's this sort of fifth column movement that's there to, I think, kind of um, storm the gates of hell, <laughs> storm, um, uh, you know, th these sort of national boundaries that belong to these, what we call, what we could call demonic figures um, and sort of reclaim these people for Christ. Now, this doesn't work the same way that they're imagining and it works. It's not, you know, we're going to go ahead and make these, we're going to take over the political power and make it Christian. Um, it's this thing that sort of is, uh, I think you use the word super political. It's supranational. It's, you know, we don't care about these. these in fact, uh, we don't care about these walls. In fact, Paul says the wall, the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles has been destroyed in Christ. So Christ comes to break down these boundaries and to create one people. And, you know, 50 days after his resurrection, we have the day of Pentecost and that's basically reverse Babel, right? They, they, they speak negatively about Babel. And I agree, you know, it's this whole thing about what happens when humans try to build power for themselves. And so God destroys it. Uh, but then you have the day of Pentecost where it's about, um, you know, suddenly now people are, you know, Babel was about the confusion of languages. Pentecost is about how everybody can now understand each other. And the gospel is spreading and reaching out to all these different nations to create one new people. And so it's just a different thing. So this isn't what Jesus, what they're talking about is not what Jesus has in mind. Jesus has in mind going through the nations, making disciples, baptizing them. Um, he doesn't have in mind, um, you know, let's just co-opt Satan's kingdom for ourselves. Right. And I think the great vision for the kingdom of God is that, if, like, as Jesus says in Matthew 28, that all authority has been given to him. Like, he is the yeah. ultimate authority figure. And I really do believe that if you look at Genesis chapter 3 through 11, that the the division of humanity, and this is especially true after the Tower of Babel, that the division of humanity is a result of the fall. Like, that's the one of the consequences for human rebellion is that human beings were divided and broken up into separate nations. This is just yeah. a consequence of that rebellion. And so, through Abraham's family, and of of course, Jesus is kind of the ultimate seed of Abraham, according to Paul in Galatians chapter three. You know, and what what uh, what the writer of Genesis says in Genesis twelve one through three that Abraham's family will be a blessing to the nations. That all of that is coming to fruition in the rule of the kingdom of God with Jesus as the Messiah. And so, from that perspective, then it sh that we should as Christians be wanting to dissolve these national identities or these national identities that we have are a distant second to our primary identity, which is in Christ. Um, and 
And so if we want to undo the result of the fall, which is happening through Jesus, then we should also be against this idea that human beings should be divided up into separate nations. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Theologically um, speaking. Yeah. I was going to maybe get into Peter a little bit later. There's another section there, but they do quote um, the apostle Peter. And uh, I think it's first Peter, um, you know, Peter is, is tell, tells his audience to live like foreigners and exiles in the nations where they're, where they're at, because we are part of a different nation. He uses that word nation. We'll get into that, their own definition of nation, how it jibes with Peter's, but um, it, it's something entirely different. I mean, you know, we, we are, in the world, but not of it. But I think Christian nationalism is saying, let's do both. Yeah. Yep. I, I totally agree with that. Well, let's, let's take a look at a couple of these articles. So you and I, I think they're, they're what, 20 something altogether, something like that. I don't know. There, there are a bunch of articles. We decided we're going to talk about maybe six or seven of the ones that are the most significant, at least to our arguments as Christian libertarians. Uh, and the first one is article three, which is the standard of justice. And here's what they say. They say that we affirm that God's word is authoritative on everything to which it speaks. And we affirm that God's word speaks abundantly regarding the nature and importance of civil government and justice. We affirm that God's moral law is enduring and binding on all all people throughout all time, including civil authorities and nations, and that is summar summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. We further affirm that every political thought must be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. We affirm that Christ will judge every civil authority according to their conformity to His command. So, what what what, what do they what do they get wrong about justice? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think it's it's primarily this question I think here of what the law is and what it does. So. Um, the Ten Commandments do have some overlap with what we might call natural law. And, and they'll make this distinction more as we go on, this kind of natural law versus divinely revealed law. Natural law are these things that we kind of know that we don't necessarily have to be told, that you know, presumably God has sort of put into us this idea that you know, stealing is wrong and killing is wrong and dishonest, you know, all these sort of things. Um, so that, but then like, you know, God's revealed law are things that are a little more specific, like um, you know, keep the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, right? <laughs> and so the Ten Commandments have some um, overlap with natural law because it has commands not to kill and not to steal. Um, but, you know, ultimately what they're kind of trying to do here is take the Ten Commandments and say, this is a summary of the natural law. Um, but it's not really. First of all, it, it has stuff in there that we would not consider part of the natural law. Uh, for example, the Sabbath command, uh, discussion of um, not... Um, um, coveting your, your neighbor's slaves, <laughs> for example. <laughs> slavery was allowed in the Old Testament, but I don't think that that's natural. I don't think that's part of natural law that slavery is okay. Um, and more than that, the Ten Commandments are not distinct from the law of Moses. They're part of the law of Moses. And so, you know, the Old Testament never makes these distinctions that, that these folks are trying to make and some Christians try to make about different types of laws. Well, there's ceremonial laws and those disappear. And then there's civil laws and those disappear unless you're a theonomist. And then there's moral laws and those continue. Um, that's not part of the Old Testament mindset. These are intertwined together. Um, and, um, you know, th th we never read, OK, well, this is going to go away, but this other thing is, is, is eternal and it's moral, you know. So it, it's really all one thing. And the Ten Commandments are not universally intuited as a whole. There might be parts of it that you could say are, but, but not entirely. They were given as God's covenant with Israel. And that's why the psalmist tells us that God, uh, quote, declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt this way with other any other nation. And as for his judgments, judgments, sorry, they have not known them. Psalm 147, uh, 19 through 20. So that's in reference to Israel's law, all of it, including the Ten Commandments. Um, 
and I don't want to talk too much because I want to hear what you have to say, but I just maybe one more thing, which is moving into the New Testament, why are Christian nationalists basing their proposed society on the old covenant law? And, and Paul, I think, kind of essentially tells us why in 2 Corinthians 3. The old covenant, which was carved in stone, <clears throat> Ten Commandments, brought mm-hmm. condemnation, death, and the glory that was already fading. Death and condemnation, that's a perfect fit for the state. So, um, you know, obviously these people know they can't base their society of, of death on the more glorious new covenant that actually brings, you know, righteousness and eternal glory. Uh, you know, are, are they going to write laws based on the Sermon on the Mount? You know, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, be meek, make peace, suffer rather than seek revenge. You know, God forbid. So they want to do the same thing with, uh, with with those laws that the fair or those ideas, those commandments that the Pharisees did to the one who preached it. Away with it. We don't want to go forward. We want to go back. Um, so Ten Commandments as a system of law has been done away with in Christ. For Christians, it's gone. It might inform uh, how we follow Christ at times, but it's not our law anymore. Christian nationalists want to make it our law again, uh, but in doing so, they're undoing what Christ accomplished. And not only that, so not only are they are they sort of taking Christians back, but they want us to force it on non-Christians living within our national borders. So this is not at all a biblical idea. Yeah, it's not. And one of the so let's let's go ahead just and do kind of like a thought experiment with this here. So let's go ahead and assume or, or assert, I guess, that Jesus did intend for us to continue to follow the entire Levitical law. So yeah. if you become a Christian, you put your faith in him, you have to follow the law. And that's going to be the boundary marker that defines who is and who is not a part of the church. The Gentiles have to submit to the law, which is completely um, is completely against what Paul argues in Romans, Galatians and Ephesians. But we're just going to pretend that that's the case. So even even then, there's no there's no biblical foundation at any point anywhere in the New Testament that means that we had to take those laws and enshrine them into law. Like there was never a push to advocate that the Romans embrace the Jewish law and yeah. tried to impose it using the power of the state on the people. It was if, even if you granted this like this uh, counterfactual here, like it was supposed to be voluntarily incurred by those who put their faith in Christ. Now we know you're completely right. Like like the the law is not what defines um is not what defines the church. It's faith in the Messiah. That's what that's what really defines the true people of God and this messianic era. And there's just there's just no there's no um, injunction whatsoever to try to impose that upon other people by force. And this is what's really interesting to me about reading through the book of Acts, thinking about Christian nationalism, is that Paul comes into contact with all these very powerful people within the Roman Empire. I mean, like proconsuls, like people that had had the consulorship at some point during their career. So I mean, really really powerful people within the Roman Empire. And when he meets them, he does he never advocates for a change in political policy. He never advocates for any sort of change in the Roman law. What he does is he preaches the gospel to them. And all of these really powerful Romans wind up actually kind of liking Paul. Like he gets along with these guys pretty well. But there's just no drive, no drive, no desire whatsoever to enforce these beliefs by law. And I, I feel like ha- if the Christian nationalists were right, we would see at least some, um, some framework for that within the New Testament. We just don't have it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I think they would maybe just say that. You know, well, you know, they didn't have any expectation maybe that that was going to happen, which is interesting, of course, because that means that they, they didn't conceive of the gospel in that way. Um, and, but yeah, I think it's more than that, that they just didn't think it was going to happen anytime soon. I think that they they just didn't think that that was part of what the gospel was and what their mission was, and that's where they speak about these things so differently. You know, Paul says things like, um, you know, our weapons are not carnal. Our enemies aren't flesh and blood. It's, it's a spiritual battle that we're fighting, right? Um, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my servants would fight. So he specifically says, well, yes, these earthly nations, they're about violence, not mine. 
The kingdom of God is not about violence. And so, yes, I think that they, they've kind of placed, you know, the, the New Testament places the kingdom of God somewhere else. It's not like these nations are. It's just something different. And so to, to mix them together is to essentially, um, they're, 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 I've heard, I think Keith Giles make this statement before, maybe other people have made it too, that um, um, when you mix, uh, you know, church and state or politics and, and Christianity, it's like mixing um, ice cream with manure. It doesn't hurt the manure, but it's terrible for the ice cream. And so, you know, in the course of that scenario, the kingdom of God is like the ice cream and, uh, you know, nationalism, politics, the state, that's the manure. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Well, that brings us pretty good to the next point that we want to discuss here, which is Article 4. It's the definition of a nation. So here's what they say in the affirmation. They say that we affirm that a nation is not merely an idea, an abstract principle, or an ideology, but tangibly defined by a particular body of people in a particular place. We affirm that a particular people are necessarily bound together by a shared culture, custom, history, and lineage while sharing common interests, virtues, languages, and worship. Uh, we affirm in regards to place that a nation is definitively set both by its borders and times physically defined by God. Um, and then they also say that uh, the nations have a right to maintain an autonomous government, to prioritize the security of its own people by providing for the common defense, and then to promote its own prosperity and enforce justice. And then this one's really interesting too, and I, I really want to get your thought on on this. And the, uh, the denial, it says that we deny that a nation should cede its sovereignty to international bodies that may subvert the will of the national interest for a global order. We deny any effort to establish a one world governmental system before the return of Christ such as efforts are or, or as such efforts are a reenactment of the Tower of Babel. And then they go on to end this by saying we utterly repudiate sinful ethnic partiality in all of its various forms. So there's a lot going on there. How, let, let's uh, let's start unpacking that. So I'll start with the negative since you meant that mentioned that first, the denial. Um, we talked about this a little bit, the whole Pentecost Babel thing. Yeah, of course, creating a one world government is a bad thing. But what they want to do <laughs> is this kind of pre-Pentecost, post-Babel state. That's that's the ideal that God has for us right now. No, it's not. It's it's actually post-Pentecost. Um, so, um, yes, you know, we're supposed to be operating as citizens of this sort of international or supranational kingdom that's above states and borders. Um, I want to go back because I'm still looking at the first draft, and there's a really interesting addition that they had there. They added um, to the second edition that um, a particular people are bound by lineage. So we're moving back into ethno-nationalism a little bit. Right. You know, so th they are denying it on some level, but they're moving back a, a little bit in that direction. Um, and um, gosh. Yeah, so that concerns me. Uh, so this whole Acts 17.26 thing, um, which is kind of where they're, where they're sort of pulling from, and they quote it there about the... Um, the nation being defined by its borders and times that are physically defined by God. That um, that's essentially the argument that you're familiar with Bob Jones university, a fundamentalist uh, college in South Carolina. No, no. Up until the year 2000, they had a um, anti uh, interracial dating policy. You couldn't date. So not that you would know because you also couldn't hold hands or kiss or anything like that. So you would never <laughs> know who was dating. Um, but um that was still up in effect until the year 2000. And they denied that it was racist. They quoted Acts 1726, like the statement did. And they said, well, hey, separate peoples are still equal peoples. Haven't you ever heard of Plessy versus Ferguson? And so they, um, <laughs> they were essentially trying to argue that God wanted people to be separate. Um, not that they were unequal. It's just, you know, these people are here and these people are here and we don't cross those boundary lines. So 
my, my, my initial enthusiasm for the fact that they had excluded the white nationalists has been watered down a little bit by their claim that nationhood has to do with lineage. That's blood and soil, what, you know, ethno-nationalism. That's, that's yikes. Right. Um, now, do, do you think real quick before you move on here, do you yeah. think that they conceptualize like a patchwork of Christian nations as being something like Europe is today, where you have like a German state and a Swedish state and an Italian state and they all get along? Or do you think that it is uh, sort of exclusive? I, I, I just I, I wonder how because they never it's like you said before, there's enough ambiguity in the language yeah. that it's really hard to tell exactly what the mental image that they have in their head of this future Christian nation would look like. Yeah. If, if it was pre-Trump, I'd say, well, conservatives are at least free market. So maybe they, <laughs> maybe they'd at least be okay with trade, but I don't know so much anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of vague, but I, I, I have some concerns about that. I mean, what does securing borders mean? You know, right. Um, so that's the other thing too, that this kind of reference to securing borders also kind of makes it seem like, well, we've grandfathered in some ethnic minorities, but that doesn't mean we should let any more in. Um, I'm not saying that's what they're saying. I, I don't want to impute that because like you said, it's, it's kind of vague. But, but there's some language about about immigration and now this lineage addition uh, that, that do concern me. Right. Um, oh, it's it's so interesting too from an American context because like no, I, I don't know anyone that's like a pure blood of of one particular nationality. Yeah. You know, like America is the great melting pot, and so I don't know. You know, I have I have ancestors that come from all over Europe yeah. that are technically of different races. You know, and so the idea that we can that the idea that there are like pure bloods and that we can identify them and that we can also group them into a nation and have one set of laws and customs is kind of dissolved by this American melting pot. Well, it's not just a problem with America. It's it's a problem everywhere because people have always moved across, you know, I, I want to say boundary lines, but I mean, there have been boundary lines in the past, but the nation state idea is kind of the central thing here. And that's kind of modern. Um, yeah. You know, it, 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 I think Murray Rothbard has makes a statement about this, how in the past, you know, people would cross borders, you know, all the time. And, and, and they didn't, they weren't concerned about the fact that, you know, their leaders were at war with another nation's leaders. They had friends over there. They would go visit. Um, and so, you know, people, you know, humans have always moved around. And so I, I, I don't know that you could find anybody who's a pure anything. Maybe, maybe some of the, you know, people who live on islands or maybe the, right. the yeah. Swedish people or something. Uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's not really true. Generally, it's not just not true of America. It's not true generally. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, I do agree that, um, you know, people live together more harmoniously when they have a shared foundation When they talk about these sort of abstract ideas, values, interests, et cetera. Um, I disagree that the shared foundation necessarily requires a shared worship or shared theology. That was kind of the old view. I mean, if you go back and you read, uh, you know, Hobbes or Locke or something, well, maybe not Locke as much, but a little bit Locke, definitely Hobbes, you know, they have this idea that, you know, well, if we start letting people have religious freedom, you know, it's going to happen. You know, it's, it's going to be chaos. People can't live together and not have the same exact religious views. Um, and I think we've proved that to be incorrect. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, for example, America, at least in theory, at least it's supposed to, um, has this sort of shared idea, shared ideas of freedom, religious freedom, freedom of speech, et cetera. And, and while I, we're, we're far from perfect, I think we've succeeded in far greater ways than our theocratic counterparts have. Um, and so, you know, I understand that, you know, when you have people living together who don't always agree that it creates uh, or different backgrounds or whatever, it can create some conflict. Um, and so I do think we need to work on figuring out what are those things that unite us so that we can live more peaceably with each other. I think liberty is a pretty good one. Um, but, but yeah, I'm, 
I, I don't think that that means we have to have all a shared theology in order to to be a nation or or to sort of have common goals. Um, so do I have anything else I wanted to mention on that? I was looking through my notes. I, I've, I actually have a lot on this section. Um, one thing I did have is I did have an extra sort of note on the Acts seventeen twenty six thing about um, Paul sort of setting the, the times and and, and uh, appointed places for for different peoples, and I think it's it's interesting because what they what Bob Jones University at the very least assumed what that meant was well that was because God didn't want the people mixing. He wanted nations to be distinct for all time throughout history, um, but those borders have changed and peoples have mixed throughout history. Right. Um, during Paul's time, uh, you know, Rome broke down as many of these boundaries as they could, so they could create an empire. Um, but Paul tells us in the next verse, what God, uh, was actually working through history to do. And it wasn't to try to keep everybody separate. It was that, so people would quote, seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And the end goal of God's ultimate direction of history is illustrated in precisely what Paul was doing. He was crossing borders between towns right. and regions and peoples to bring the good news to the nations that Israel's God had broken down their borders to make one new man without walls, even big, beautiful, huge walls that Mexico is going to pay for. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's just so true. And the, the entire and I know I've talked about this already in this episode, but I think it, it just bears to keep in mind again that the entire purpose of the gospel is that it breaks down the division, as you said, between Jew and Gentile. This is the logic of Ephesians. This is the logic of Galatians. This is the logic of Romans. And yeah. you alluded to this passage before, but Galatians 3.28, uh, in Christ Jesus, there are no Jew nor Greek, no male, nor female, nor slave, nor free. What Paul yeah. is not, what Paul is saying there is not that those, not, not that those identities uh, just completely go away, but that those identities are subsumed under your new identity, which is a follower of Christ and a believer in the gospel. Like that's that's what really matters. And everyone that has faith in the Messiah is a part of, equally a part of Abraham's family. And those other identities become secondary. They become subsumed underneath this new identity as a Christian. And even if looking at like uh, like like the scene of in the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5, when John stands before God, he sees uh, the lamb having uh, brought people out of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And this is the vision of the United Church, that it's it's not our, what, what really matters is not these incidental differences like maleness or femaleness, whether you are a Greek or whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Roman or whatever. What matters is this belief in the Messiah and all of the other stuff just kind of goes by the wayside. And I think that their definition of nationalism actually emphasizes the kind of identities that the New Testament wants to marginalize. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's good. So, yeah, there's that one. The next one's really interesting, too, and maybe one of the most frustrating ones uh, of all. It's Article 5, which is the nature of Christ's lordship and kingdom. And they say, we affirm that in addition to possessing the titles of Savior, Messiah, and many others, Jesus, the Son of God, who is truly God, is also the kings of all earthly kings, the Lord of all earthly lords, and the lawmaker for all earthly lawmakers. He is the possessor of all authority in heaven and on earth. We affirm that as God, Jesus Christ is preeminent over all creation, sovereignly rules over all things visible and invisible in heaven, earth, and hell, and ordains all things according to the counsel of his perfect will for the good of those in him. We affirm his mediatorial role. Christ rules by his spirit and his words through the saints and their early authority. Um, he's the king of kings. He commands all civil authorities, Christian and non-Christian alike, to execute his will on the earth to orient humankind towards himself through the moral law, which is the uh, which is the, the big one right there. And then he also they also say in the denial, uh, we deny any theology which would seek to segregate sacred aspects of life where God's word is authoritative and supposedly secular aspects of life 
life where the Christian must operate by a standard other than God's word. And we deny any theology which claims that bringing God's word into the civil sphere is unwise, unfruitful, sinful, or anything other than fitting and required. So go, go ahead. Wow. So um, we've talked a little bit about um, I, 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 kind of the whole state is the domain of Satan thing. There's a few things here that um, when I think about why Christian nationalism is unbiblical, um, if I were to kind of summarize it into just three things, I would say that when I did say that the state is the domain of Satan, uh, but our kingdom is not of this world, um, I would add that Jesus forbids the use of violence, and that's what the state is. I mean, that, that the state is the monopoly on force. So, you know, the idea that the state is doing God's will through violence, that may be true in a sense, in the sense that God is sovereign, but it's not, but it's not compatible with the way that Christians are supposed to be doing the will of God. So that puts us in a, in a separate category. Um, and then um, finally, the other thing I mentioned, which is that we're not to live by the old law, let alone force it on others. Um, but, but the reference here to, um, uh, you know, how that's, you know, we're supposed to sort of, let me find the, the line here. Uh, divinely is ordained to execute his will on the earth to orient humankind toward himself. The idea that it's this, the job of the state to use violence to orient people toward Christ and the gospel is incoherent if you understand Christ and the gospel the way the Bible does, the way the New Testament does. Um, so yes, um, so that's that, that's one. There, there's, there's, I should mention this. There's, you know, God does direct the course of history to orient humans toward Himself, uh, but nowhere does Scripture say that earthly authorities of Gentile nations have a responsibility to enforce biblical standards, and so. I think this needs to be this needs to be noticed. Um, in Amos, for example, you have Amos who is upgrading Israel uh, or upgrading you know, the people of God, the natural, you know, the, the theocracy, and then he he also is upgrading some of the Gentile nations. And here's what he says about Israel: He says, "You guys aren't keeping the Sabbath. You guys aren't keeping God's law." And then he looks at the Gentiles and he says, "You're enslaving your neighbors." <laughs> you know, um, and so it's he appeals to natural, what you might call natural law, or or um, Jews had this idea. Uh, this rabbinic Jews developed this idea of the Noachic laws, the Noachic, uh, so the laws that were supposedly given to Noah. And so they're much more simple. It's like a short list and it's, it's something that they think that all Gentiles should be able to know. <laughs> and they, they actually say that Gentiles are held accountable to that, not the 613 or 14 laws in the, in the old covenant. Right. And so they had a sense that they were held to something different. Um, and Amos had a sense that they were held, the, the, the Jews and, and non-Jews were held to something different. And I think the New Testament does as well. There's this expectation that we're not just going to follow natural law. We're going to go beyond that. We're going to love our neighbors. There's nothing in natural, or love our enemies. There's nothing in natural law about loving your enemies, about turning the other cheek. You know, according to natural law, you have a right to self-defense. Um, but according to, you know, Jesus and the gospel, you turn the other cheek when you're smited, right? Um, and so... You know, what they, I think, want to do is they say, well, you know, if we have objective morality and absolute morality, then we should have these kind of one laws, one law across the board kind of thing. Um, and then but then they also sort of cut corners and say, well, let's just make that the, the, the Ten Commandments. <laughs> um, uh, and then we'll sort of explicate on that, you know, in ways that we see fit. Uh, and if we're wrong, who cares? All we're doing is violence against our neighbors. Um, so that that's this idea that there's kind of just this one law that everybody's held accountable to is actually not a biblical idea. It's not in the old Testament and it's not in the new Testament. Um, so that, that's one thing I, I want to mention. Uh, the other thing is, do we get into, yes, we did. The, the, um, we deny any theology, which is seek to segregate sacred aspects of life. 
Yeah. So I agree with that. Uh, but here's the question. What does God's word tell us about the civil sphere and what does applying scripture to it look like? So if God says um, vanilla ice cream is better than chocolate, but don't kill people who like chocolate uh, and you go around killing people who prefer chocolate because you don't want to segregate the <laughs> sacred and the secular, then you're, you're actually disobeying God. Right. And so here are the things that I jotted down just kind of as I was looking over this, just some notes that I took on what the Bible tells us about the state. One, it tells us that God is ultimately sovereign over it, whether its rulers are trying to obey him or not. And that's key because uh, I think when, when Paul is thinking about how in Romans 13, about how God uses the state, I think he's reflecting on these traditions of God using Babylon to punish Judah, right? Babylon is not seeking to follow God. They're not trying to be obedient to God. They don't have a good moral reason for doing what they're doing. They're trying to conquer, but God is still using them because God is sovereign over history. And so that's important. I think that what they're trying to say, well, if God is sovereign and the nations are his servants, then that means that they are going to be sort of forcing the Ten Commandments on everybody. Well, that's not necessarily true. That's not what Babylon was doing and God used them. And I think that's the context in which Paul is speaking. Yeah. Um, the Bible also tells us about the state that it's been given over to Satan, which we've mentioned, who manages each territory through corrupt spiritual forces and gives the power of the state to whichever human rulers he pleases. Three, the Bible presents no reason to expect the state to not be under Satan's authority until Satan is finally destroyed, along with every rule and authority and power. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if, they're, if, you, want, if, you, if you want to talk to a, a theonomist who's a full preterist, then maybe we, we have a different conversation. But assuming they're not, <laughs> um, I think that follows. Four, the function of the state, which was completely pagan in the days of the apostles, is to create order through the threat of potentially lethal violence, the exercise of which is forbidden for Christians. And then five, the kingdom of God is not only not an earthly kingdom and not marked by violence, it's also consistently presented as being in opposition to the kinds of governments that we find on earth. Followers of Jesus who tried to make him king by force were presented as missing the point entirely and failing to understand the gospel of the kingdom. So in other words, Christian involvement in the state, I think, is severely limited by scripture due to the spiritual nature and violent function of government. And that's not me saying, well, it doesn't matter what God's word says about the state. We're going to keep that separate. That's me saying, what does God's word say about the state? And that, let's, let's act on that. Yeah. I also think that this is a denial of New Testament Christology as well. There's a really good book that came out a couple of years ago by a New Testament scholar named Joshua Jipp. And the name of that book is The Messianic Theology of the New Testament. And in it, he argues very convincingly that the theological presupposition for all of the writers of the New Testament is that Jesus is the Messiah and that his messiahship is deeply rooted in these Old Testament categories of kingship. So you have great passages like 2 Samuel 7 and Daniel chapter 7 and Ezekiel 34. And, uh, Isaiah 9 and 11, where the the future promised king will rule over the entire world. So the, the goal of the Messiah or the goal of the future king of Israel will be to redeem and restore Israel, but then also the nations will wind up submitting to that king in some way. And so ultimately that king acts as the authority for the entire world. And that's exactly what we see fulfilled in Jesus. It goes back to the, the great command or the great commission um, that, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, 
or you as a church will go and make disciples of all the nations. And then there's this beautiful passage at the end of Romans 15 where Paul is quoting Isaiah, um, and he's talking about how Jews and Gentiles need to accept one another. Again, going back to this fundamental distinction in the New Testament between uh, Jews and uh, and Gentiles, he says, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory for God. Uh, for I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, i.e. the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. And then he has a bunch of quotes from Isaiah. And the most powerful one here is the last one. He says, uh, and, and as, as Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles hope. And of course, that word Gentile there, ethnes, means nation in Greek. And the idea is not that Christ is going to rule over individual nations, but that all of the nations will be incorporated into the family of God so that you have this united Jew and Gentile family. And this idea of nationalism being based on kind of a fractured humanity where everyone has their own kind of individual state and their own individual way of doing things just completely undercuts the Christian vision of a united uh, rule by the Messiah. I think that's so important. And it, it's such a it's such a uh, it's it's such a, a slap in the face to the, the high Christology of the New Testament. Yeah, it, what you're saying also reminded me of a, an article that I uh, somewhat recently had published at the Libertarian Christian Institute, uh, The Astonishing Power of a Faithful Mustard Seed Revolution, is I think the title they went with uh, for it. And I, I pointed out that this um, the parable that Jesus tells of the mustard seed um, is a quotation of a handful of Old Testament passages that are all about how God is going to destroy the nations <laughs> and replace right. it with something better. Um so I, I think that's important to, to keep in mind. We're not talking about just co-opting the thing that Satan's doing. We're talking about destroying it, replacing it with the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we got we got a, about 10 or 15 minutes left here. Uh, we're going to go through the, we, a couple of the other articles that we're taking a look at dovetail sure. on the ones that we've talked about. So you have Article 8, which is the purpose of civil government. Um, and I think that they say here that they deny that the purpose of civil government is to establish a secular, neutral, or godless order. We deny that any government is capable of neutrality as every individual and system has moral pre- preferences and functional gods, which I, I think like on the face of it is a a tr- like a, just a factually true statement. But then they also say that we affirm that God's purpose for civil government is to establish justice for his glory and the good of all people. We affirm that unjust laws harm people and that just laws reflect the character of God and point people towards their needs for a savior. Now, this one was really interesting to me because one of the things that Stephen Wolf does in his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, is he says that laws should orient people towards the good. Well, what is the good? Well, the good is biblical morality. Well, who decides what biblical morality is? Well, it's the Christian prince, the one who's in charge of the state. So within Wolf's framework, there's, of course, this giant, um, there's this giant temptation for a subjective interpretation of what is moral and what is good. And as we know, you know, every single Christian interprets the Bible differently. So in a Christian nation like this, it's going to be based on Christian, quote unquote, Christian laws and Christian customs. How do we know who is accurately interpreting what those laws are and deriving them from scripture? And then with the statement on Christian nationalism in the gospel, it's like we were talking about before, they at least root their legal framework in the Ten Commandments. But there are many elements of the Ten Commandments that are open 
open to interpretation. So if you're going to make that the foundation of your law, uh, how do you deal with the fact that there might be some people in a society that interprets for uh, that inter- for instance, like the injunction on murder? So what constitutes murder? That's always been kind of an open question in theology. Um, and then adultery would be another one. So what happens when you have different groups in a Christian nation who disagree on their interpretation of Christian morality as it would be implemented through the law of the land? That's that's the question that I have as I'm looking. It just it just introduces that level of subjectivity. And what will wind up happening is that you'll have the personal theological preferences of the leaders and the legislators instead of an actual faithful representation of what the Bible tells us we ought to be doing as Christians. Yeah, and I think we should also mention, they keep talking about the Ten Commandments, but um, at least in my version of this, it talks about how natural law is um, is not apart from God's moral and universal law, which is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. And so what they're, I think what, I think what they're really saying is that the Ten Commandments are not the extents of the law that they're going to p- promote. So I, I don't, I don't think that there's necessarily opposition to other things in, in the Torah that they would consider to be moral laws. We, we could, um, you know, take those laws and maybe kind of contextualize them a little bit different in our time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, t- to me, if you're going to say, well, God's law is this sort of universal thing um, that applies at all times, then I think we do have to have a discussion about slavery. I think we do have to have a discussion about um, stoning rebellious kids. I do think we have to have a discussion about um, the death penalty for um, I don't know, adultery, which I think is horrible, but I, I don't, I don't think I would, you know, I know people who've committed adultery and, and repented and turned their turned around and I, I'm glad that they didn't get stoned. Right. Um, so I think that the 10 commandments is a summary of the law is kind of a, is, is another one of those kind of rallying points, kind of like that, that definition earlier on, that was a card to disagree with. I think everybody kind of likes the 10 commandments. And so it seems like a good short summary. That's not going to be too, uh, too controversial uh, because if they sort of went out and, you know, we're just sort of going, you know, full theonomist. Um, I think it would, it would frighten people who <laughs> they want to yeah. try to bring in. Um, so as for, you know, what's the, you know, what's the standard, you know, Greg Bonson wrote that book, you know, was it by this standard? Um, who, who's, who's a theonomist? Um, I mean, I think that the Bible is clear. Like I said, that there is not, um, that there are different standards for different concerns. So the, the standards that Christians, so for example, imagine if um, we said, okay, well, uh, love your enemy is part of the Christian standard. So if somebody doesn't love their enemy, we should kill them. <laughs> you, know, right. you know, it's like, well, well, that seems to be kind of contradicted by the idea of loving, <laughs> loving your enemy, right? And so, um, you know, to me, what the state is doing is, is, is it is maintaining order. Um, and we can talk about, you know, because I, I have these sort of, you know, anarchist leanings and, you know, I think that there are other ways to do things uh, to, to accomplish these goals other than just the state. You know, I think that there are ways to create order and peace and justice without necessarily having to have a monopoly on force. Uh, but that's what was, you know, that was there at the time. And that was sort of what was assumed was the main way to do that. Um, but, yeah, I don't think that the state's laws are necessarily um, the laws that are committed to Israel, nor are they the laws that are or the, the commands that are given to Christians by Jesus or Paul or Peter or James. 
Yeah, and I think it's important too to 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 just reflect on the fact that when Jesus brings about the kingdom of God, he doesn't do it through violence. He actually does it through absorbing violence, and that is completely counterintuitive to their conception of the state. And again, it's it's worth it's worth reading. I hear Revelation chapter five, um, and this is verse verse nine. Uh, but this is John standing in the throne room, and of course, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And it says, uh, and the elders that are there with him, it says they sang a new song, saying, "Worthy are you," referring to Jesus to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So the thing that makes Jesus worthy of worship and the thing that makes Jesus worthy of being given the authority over all of the nations is not the fact that he was able to inflict or threaten violence, but it's, it was that he absorbed violence and God brought him out the other side of it. And I think that if we don't have that sacrificial cruciform understanding of power and of leadership and of authority, then we're we're just going to fundamentally miss one of the most important points that the writers of the New Testament make. And this goes back to, I think, what is the most, it's one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament, which is Philippians chapter two, where Paul says that Jesus was exalted um, to all authority because he was willing to descend both in terms of his incarnation and becoming human and then also suffering death on a cross and that we as Christians should have the same attitude as the Messiah who instead of grasping for power and considering equality with God something to be held on to he emptied himself and became a servant that should be the standard for all Christians and for all Christian leadership within that framework there's no there's no need for violence or the threat of violence in order to try to convince people or convict people to follow your Christian values like People, when they see that example, they will see Jesus and they'll, they'll want to put their faith in him. No coercion or violence needed. So the last one here um, that I want to talk about, because I think a couple of the other articles, they, they really, a lot of a lot of this, I know that they're going into great detail to try to make sure that they tie up all their loose ends here. But a lot of the uh, articles in this statement are, are pretty repetitive. They deal with a lot of uh, the same issues. But the last one that I want to uh, discuss is Article 18. It's on just war. And I know both you and I, you've written some really great stuff on war. And in fact, uh, the first time I had you on the show, we talked about a couple of your the articles that you have written about war and, um, and Christmas and how those two things relate to each other. But I want to read the uh, the affirmation here and also the denial because there are some really interesting there's some really interesting things that are going on here that I think a lot of libertarians might actually find agreeable. So they say this, they say we and this is article 18 on just war. They say we affirm that war is only to be waged one for a just cause by a just magistrate involving the protection of human life from persecution as a uh, two as a last resort when peaceful methods of conflict resolution have been diligently pursued and exhausted three in pursuit of achievable goals four with a pure motive and intention of establishing peace and justice as quickly as possible, and five, by moral means that scrupulously avoids civilian casualties and only inflicts as much violence as is necessary for the achievement of the objective. We affirm that even when a war is just according to the above criteria, nations should be extremely cautious in discerning whether a proposed war is wise, taking every contingency into account. We affirm that many wars throughout history have been waged for sinful purposes, such as greed, revenge, and lust for power and fortune. And then their denial here is pretty good. They say, we deny that war is ever a means by which the gospel or simply good ideas about government and society are to be spread. We deny that holy wars are ever morally permissible. We deny that governments may coerce civilian participation in unjust wars. So a lot going on there. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that, 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 that denial is, I think, where the Christian nationalism comes in, right? Of course, we can use violence <laughs> within the within the context of the borders. Um, but yes, but of course, we don't want to ever do that outside of the context of the borders to spread the gospel. And, and they would, I, I want to be sort of fair, they would say that, well, you know, we're not really using the state to spread the gospel. I mean, that's kind of different. You know, people, 
the Holy Spirit is the one who converts. You know, the state can't do that, but the state does sort of have a, an obligation. I think they they think to create sort of the fertile ground with which they think the gospel can can spread. Um, right. So yeah, I mean, ultimately, this this section could be affirmed by I think most Christians. Um, there's nothing particularly Christian nationalist about it. But there is one problem with it, and that is that it's not biblical. Right. <laughs> um, in, the, in the Old Testament, God commands holy wars. In the New Testament, he commands turning the other cheek and putting down our swords. Um, so, you know, but neither one of those is just war theory. Just war theory comes from the church father, Augustine, and was expounded upon by Aquinas, who I mentioned earlier. Um, neither quoted relevant scriptures for support. You could make the argument that we derive just war principles from natural law. Uh, and not from scripture, uh, but Christians are supposed to follow Jesus when he and natural law conflict. So this is, I think, if, if the United States government was saying this, I'd say, well, that's a pretty good natural law principle for, for government to follow. Uh, but does it, it, but there's nothing really Christian about it, I guess. Um, we're called to something higher than our pagan neighbors are. And, um, you know, once again, cr- Christian nationalists obliterate this biblical distinction, leading them to believe that it's their duty to force the dead letter, dead letter of the law onto mostly you know, or onto non-Christians. Yeah. And I, I had, uh, an episode 50 of my show. I had, um, Lori Calhoun from the Libertarian Institute. She's a great writer, philosopher, and she has done a lot of work on warfare. And she has a book where she criticizes the just war theory theory called war and delusion. And I had her on to talk about that. Yeah. It's, it's really great. Um, one of the points that she makes with the just war theory, well, she, she has a couple of shit. It's, it's, it's essentially a philosophical takedown of the just war theory. And she shows how it just doesn't work within the context of modern warfare. But one of the points that she makes is that you have all of these, these positions that are all of these criteria that a just war has to satisfy in order to be considered just, but all of them are open to the subjectivity of leaders. And so you have like ideas that are built into this statement on Christian nationalism, like war is a last resort. Um, You have to be protecting life. You have to have achievable goals. You have to have pure intentions. There has to be moral means and you only inflict as much violence as necessary. Well, who gets to decide whether or not it's a last resort? Who gets to decide what enough violence looks like? Who gets to decide um, what uh, peaceful methods of conflict rev- resolution look? You know, so like all of these are open to the subjectivity of people that oftentimes benefit from war. And then the other point that she makes, going back to Augustine and Aquinas, is that in the these original conceptions of just war theory, there were no tanks or airplanes or um, drones or anything like that. And so the just war theory from like from Augustine's point of view would essentially be a form of self-defense. So it's like you have your nation and there are defined borders. And if somebody comes into your, your country, it would just be like someone it breaks into your house and you defend yourself from someone who breaks into your house. But all that goes out the window when you can drop bombs on people from thousands of feet up in the air. And when these borders don't actually prevent you from, uh, from, from fighting, there's no geographical, um, there's no geographical restrictions like there were in, in antiquity. And, in well, and, and, and I, I just, I, I want to sort of just, append to something to that which is um um yes if someone is is going crossing the borders for 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 violent intent (laughs) because yeah i I think i was just arguing with somebody about this um i want to do a deeper dive into um the way immigration laws were formatted in the ancient world but i think i mean a lot of what we think about when we think about immigration laws are these sort of kind of more modern nation states and and i don't think that was necessarily a feature of, of the ancient world but there was an idea that this is kind of our territory, and if obviously someone comes in to steal or kill, then then there's a right to self-defense. Um, right, right. 
Yeah, it would be like 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 Augustine's city of God. Like when the when the Vandals come and sack right. Rome, the Romans have a right to defend themselves. Sure. We're, we're, not, we're not talking about Paul going into Capernaum and somebody going, "He's an intruder, kill him." <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um. So yeah, and I, I want to mention one more thing, just because one we we talked about maybe doing, but we kind of skipped, and I just have kind of a quick thing on it. it yeah. On section twelve on the vocation and calling of Christian officials and legislators. Oh yeah, I, I, I yeah I did. I I'm sorry, I moved through that too quick when I was scrolling. Down no, there. Okay. I know. I know we're we're, we're we're trying to kind of keep it in time, but, um, um, and you can always cut this out if you want to, but, uh, it's basically sort of arguing that Christians can serve, um, in, in, in the state and the kind of roles that anybody could in that, in that office. Right. And so we talked about the scriptures they quoted, and this is one where I had just mentioned some of the scriptures they quoted. So I thought it was sort of fascinating because they quoted old, old Testament scriptures that were about the old covenant theocracy primarily. So not relevant. They quoted, uh, for New Testament passages, they quoted Romans 13, uh, which incidentally, if you read it with 12, Christians are told to do the opposite of what the state does, so that doesn't work. First uh, Corinthians 7, 7, which speaks of the gift of celibacy, but because if you take that verse out of context, it talks about people giving gift, given different gifts, and they're like, well, why not the gift of being a magistrate? Or, you know. Right. So, and then First Corinthians 7, 17, where Paul says, if you were a slave or uncircumcised when called, you don't need to change your status when called as a Christian. And so I suppose this really, this verse, the way they're reading it is it's about how if you're already a soldier or an executioner or a brothel owner or a drag queen, when you become a Christian, you don't need to leave that profession. You just stay right where you are. Right. Uh, so, and then they have various passages about doing good deeds. That was, a, that was sarcastic, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, but, but it, it, it's, it's, it goes to show how they, they beg the question. It's like, well, yeah, you know, why not? If Christians can do this, why couldn't they do that? It's like, well, it's just, you know. They can't. God says not to. Right. Um, so yeah. So it, it it does illustrate, I think, how how weak their textual support is here um, for for what they're arguing for. But you know, they have their scriptures, so it looks it looks legit. They do. That's it. And, and most people aren't going to do what we did and go back and actually read through those scriptures. They're going to look at the long list of scriptures and think, oh, man, this is this is based in the Bible. Well, and what's interesting, too, is that at the end of each article, and you, you can kind of see this if you just glance through the statement, at the end of each article, there are usually about eight different scriptural citations, but they're almost always the exact same citations for oh, each yeah. article. It's like Romans 13 is a citation for nearly every single one of yeah. the articles in this statement. So, you know, which, which uh, means if they've got Romans 13 wrong, a lot of it comes down. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree, and and we we have both argued before uh, on our podcast that they have gotten Romans thirteen wrong, um, yeah. which is a whole other thing. You can go back and listen to those, and I'll put links to our episodes on Romans thirteen in the show notes there. Um, before we wrap up today, what do you think the future of Christian nationalism looks like in the United States? Because it's obviously very prominent in our society right now, and there do there does seem to be a lot of people who are willing to at least embrace the label of Christian nationalist. Now, I don't believe that a lot of the people that call themselves Christian nationalists actually understand what that would entail on a, like on a practical basis, like what that would look like in reality if it were ever implemented. But there, there's more of a willingness and an acceptance to use that language. And then, of course, you have all of the progressive Christians and the ex-evangelicals that label everything that they don't like as a form of Christian nationalism. I think that they would consider sure. our liberty. Well, I know that they would consider our libertarian principles yeah. a form of Christian nationalism sure. because in one of the books, uh, The Flag and the Cross, which is Gorski and Perry are the authors, but it's essentially a progressive take on Christian nationalism. The first half has a lot of statistics about how Christian nationalism, they call it white Christian nationalism. They put the racial on it, but they talk about how like white Christian nationalism is on the rise. And the second half is a very progressive interpretation of American history that shows why this is so dangerous 
dangerous and deadly. But they talk about how like the Ron Paul campaign is rooted in white Christian nationalism and everything like. So uh, the, the the point yeah. that I'm making there is that like for progressives, everything that's even a little bit uh, to the right of, I guess, uh, their position is a form of Christian nationalism. What's what's the future look like? Yeah. I mean, is this a real threat? Is this going to fizzle out? Are we just going to continue? Is this or will this become a term that has like no concrete meaning? What do you think about that? Yeah, the, the, the progressive calling everything uh, Christian nationalism made me think of a uh, kind of a tweak on that uh, the famous line in uh, Meet the Parents. It's like I'm an anarchist, Greg. Am I a Christian nationalist? Yeah. Um, the, um, so yeah, you know, I think we have to think a little bit about why it's become popular, and and I don't think you can give a one sentence answer to that question. Um, but I think that probably one part of it is that Christianity is associated with tradition. And tradition is associated with stability. Um, that's part of why I think uh, Christianity is kind of wrapped up in the flag in this way. Um, I, I think it's, it's really this desire for identity. And so I think we're looking for stability and we're looking for identity. And so we, 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 we kind of are kind of hearkening back to these old ideas. Um, you know, so we imagine, you know, eating apple pie with, with, with grandma and the American flag waving in the distance. And there's a Bible sitting on the coffee table. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think, you know, we're living in a, in a constantly changing world and it, it feels really unmoored and hazardous. And so I think we're looking for something that's more solid to give us a sense of, you know, like, like, like you know, like we've got our bearings. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the clarion call of the, the new Christian nationalist movement is, quote, a Christian nation is gooder than transing kids, end quote. <laughs> uh, and that's 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 a quote, I'm, I'm afraid. Uh, and I th- and I think that's more revealing than they realize, <laughs> because Christian nationalism is a reaction to a scary new world. And I would say that it's not a very articulate or biblical one. It's just a grasp for identity and perceived stability. So where does it go in the future? I think that America is still diverse and complicated enough that um, I don't think there's a big chance of Christian nationalism becoming the main force. Uh, I'm afraid that it destroys our witness. I'm afraid that it has the opposite effect that instead of bringing more people to Christ, it pushes people away, uh, which is one reason why I, I think I'm, I'm, I feel very strongly about wanting to speak out against it. I've been trying to arrange some debates with some of the Christian nationalist guys and have either gotten no's or no responses, um, which really shouldn't be a surprise because they don't really believe in free exchange. That's not they part don't. of their idea. They, they, yeah. they, they believe in shutting down things that they think are wrong. Yeah, and that's what. And ju- ju- just as a note to the audience, we've been trying to get this on my show. I want to host the debate where we'll have we'll have Cody debate some Christian. Na- if you know any Christian nationalist, any of you know any Christian nationalist that we could get on the show to debate Cody, please send them my information <laughs> or send Cody uh, their information because we we want to make this happen. I, I, but yeah, anyways, yeah. So you know, th- there's this kind of you know potential scenario where uh, we have the national divorce or something, and then maybe then maybe you get you know maybe Tennessee becomes Christian nationalist or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, my concern with the national divorce is it's bad enough living with Christian nationalists and people transing kids, quote unquote, um, in the same state where they're, but they're at least fighting each other and they're not, <laughs> you know what I mean? I would hate right. to live in a state where one of those groups is running everything. Right. Uh, that sounds horrible. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, th- th- from from a kind of a political diversity standpoint, having some of that diversity in political views does, I think, lend to a little bit more freedom, even if it also does lend to, even does create a situation where there's less unity. And so yeah. it's tough. I think they, they want less freedom and more unity. And I, I could deal with more unity and less freedom uh, if, if that's my choice. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cody Cook, I think this is going to be a great place to end this. Uh, real quick, before I know you have, uh, I've had you on, but just go ahead and remind my audience where they can find you. Yeah. Uh, so my website is Cantus Firmus. <laughs> so Cantus, and then there's a dash firmus.com. Um, and it's, it's Latin and it's silly, but uh, you can, um, I also post some stuff on Libertarian Christian Institute's uh, website. That's where this uh, show is hosted. Um, and I'm on staff kind of as a writer. Um, so you can find me there as well. My name is Cody Cook. Um, if you want to put my you know website and Twitter handle in the show notes, you can do that. Yep. Um, and then I've got some books on Amazon, on theology, and uh, uh, some topics like that. Yeah, they're great. And if you want to hear a, kind of a review, a conversation about one of his books, I think, what was it? Was it episode 52? I think it was of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. We talk about his uh, book on the Old Testament. Great stuff. Uh, but again, Cody, this has been a great conversation, man. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to me at theprotestantlibertarian at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter. You can follow me at the handle at ProLibertyPod. Again, that is at ProLibertyPod. And you can also visit me at theprotestantlibertarianpodcast.com. At theprotestantlibertarianpodcast.com, you can also support the Christians for Liberty Network and the Libertarian Christian Institute. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode, and we will see you next Tuesday.